0: Hello and welcome to the Transforming Lives Together podcast, a ministry of St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church in Tonawanda, New York. This is episode 9 of the podcast, and we continue with Life's Meaning and Purpose, an in depth study of the Gospel of John, taught by the rector of St. Bartholomew's, Father Arthur Ward. In this episode, Father Ward answers questions from those in attendance and unpacks verses 1 through 21 of chapter 3. Before we turn it over to Father Ward, we would like to say thank you for listening to the Transforming Lives Together podcast, and we pray you are blessed by what you hear each week. If you're just starting to listen to this podcast, we invite you to check out previous episodes to get caught up to speed with the study. And now, with this week's lesson in the Gospel of John, here is Father Ward.
1: So we have concluded with chapter 2. And in terms of practical application, not only does it affirm uh, who Jesus is, but it also is a warning against hypocrisy and corruption. It's a reminder of the power of the resurrection. It's central to our faith. And it's also to be wary of human nature. That as I've quoted many times throughout the years, Jeremiah 79, the heart is deceitful. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and then desperately corrupt, desperately sick. Who can know it? Jesus knows it. We need to be aware of that as well. Okay, so before we go into chapter three, any uh, questions so far concerning what we cover? Any confusion? Any uh, points of clarification for chapter two, or chapter one for that matter? Yes, Na- Nancy, right? Yeah. When uh, Jesus was in the temple mm-hmm. and cast everyone out, the. Jews that were in charge, see, that's right. they were afraid because the people were paying attention to Jesus and they believed Jesus. Especially at the end, the second cleansing. Yes.
0: Well, didn't were they afraid? And didn't they believe in Jesus? Why would they want Him killed if they believed in Him and thought He was God?
1: Well, that's a great question. Let me repeat the question. When... Jesus cast out the money changers and the animals, but we read that many believed. Why would they then want to kill him? We're talking about two different cleansings. The first cleansing we read, many believed in him. But at that point, it was a superficial belief, right? But in the second cleansing, we read that the chief priests and the scribes, they made it their aim to kill him finally. When you say, though, why did some want to kill him? There were a number of reasons why people said, crucify him, crucify him. Two main reasons would be this in terms of the masses. He did not stand up against the Roman authorities, and they believed that the Messiah would be a political warrior like king who would come in and set the people free by force. That's one of the reasons why Judas betrayed Jesus because Judas was a zealot of the zealot class and they wanted the overthrow of the Romans. So that would be one aspect of it. The other aspect of it was that the religious leadership felt that Jesus was a threat to their power because everything he taught got to the heart of true religion rather than external religion that is forced from the top down, which we're going to see the contrast when we get into chapter three now and Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus. And again, when you said, well, people believed in it," if you remember, people did believe, but not everyone believed from the heart. It was more of a an intellectual assent. A good parable to highlight the contrasts of belief would be Jesus's parable of the sower, where he talks about the sower who sows, the farmer who sows seed. The seed is the word of God, and the seed falls on four types of ground. The seed falls on rocky ground, and so it doesn't really uh, get any depth. It doesn't really grow solid. The, the uh, seed falls along the wayside, doesn't even penetrate the ground. Is picked up uh, by the birds. And then the seed uh, falls on some ground that it does start to grow, but then thorns and thistles and weeds kind of grow up at the same time and overtake it and choke it. And then the fourth seed falls on good soil that reproduces fruit. So the point of that parable as it pertains to belief is that there are four main responses to the gospel. Those who, because of hardness of heart, allow Satan to just take it away like those birds. Those who say, oh, yeah, that's really good. I really like it. But when things kind of get hot and heavy like that sun, because it has no root, because they're not really following through, it just burns up. It just leaves them. The others who are like, yeah, I'm following the Lord. But when the temptations of the world and and the things, the lure of, of the natural life and the here and now overtakes them, they don't spend time in the Word, they don't spend time in church, but rather they spend time doing all these other worldly pursuits. And so it doesn't really take root. And then there's the fourth, which is hopefully all of us, where we're actually investing time, we're spending time with Jesus as the disciples did, we're following the person of the living God. And as we follow that person, the Holy Spirit transforms us from the inside out, and we start to see the fruit. And when you talk about fruit, remember there's three types of fruit in a Christian's life. There's the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, right? Against such things, there's no no law. So that's internal that should be exhibited in our life if we're following Jesus. There's the fruit of good works. That is, am what I'm doing, what's in the inside, being reflected on what I'm doing in my life on the outside. And then there's the fruit of bringing people into the kingdom. The fruit of discipleship. You see? And so if the Word of God, the seed, has really taken root, you're going to have the fruit. Any other questions or comments? Okay, let's get right into chapter 3. The new birth. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Okay, so that right there, two things about Nicodemus. A, he was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were... The legalists, they're the real strict Jews of the day. They were there to make sure that everybody got their religion right. Modern day examples of Pharisees would be the Orthodox Jews. You know, the folks who don't cut the hair and, and, and they wear the, you know, the whole works. Uh, and they follow the kosher diet. And I mean, every jot and tittle. Yes, the law. It's all about the law. It's all about external obedience. But we also have that in Christianity too. That people get too concerned about minor things to be major things and making sure you got everything, you know, you're cutting your hair the right length and you know, you're not, you know, it goes all, there's all ways that they never take a drink, you know. Oh, you took a drink, you're a sinner. Right? And so that legalism was espoused and expressed by the Pharisees. There were about 6,000, according to the ancient Jewish historian Josephus, about 6,000 Pharisees. They were from mainly the uh, business and the middle class. They were very influential, and they were the ones that butted heads with Jesus the most. Now the Sadducees, I mean the Pharisees, they believed the word, but they went too far in terms of, I mean, they believed in the miracles. They believed in the angels. They believed in the resurrection and all that stuff, or the, the future resurrection. But the problem is they were legalistic. The Sadducees, they were like the political animal of the day. They didn't really believe this stuff. They were like, yeah, you know, but they were more in cahoots with Herod and the Romans. And, and you know what? You have that problem today. Same problem. You've got the legalists, and then you've got the people who don't really care aren't really true to the word, and they go the other extreme. They're just, it's just a, a social, political group. And you have those tendencies in the church. You also have those tendencies in religion. Islam is very similar to the Pharisees. The secular humanists of the day, the worldly or the, you know, oh, we're all, all in this together, universalists. That's like the Sadducee spirit. Nothing's new. Just manifests itself in different, different ways. He's a ruler of the Jews. What would that mean? He's a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the ruling council of the Jewish faith of 70. They composed of elders, that would be heads of households, of men who are prominent in the community, priests, as well as scribes. And these guys dealt with all matters concerning civil breaking of law, civil law, and religious law. The only thing they could not do was impose the death sentence. And so that it, the only way they could impose a death sentence is to get approval by Rome. So that's why when they wanted to kill Jesus, they couldn't just go out and stone him, but they had to get approval from Pontius Pilate. And the death for the Romans, not for the Jews because crucifixion was considered a disgrace for the Jews but to be killed by the Romans meant to be crucified on a cross and that was usually reserved for the most hideous crimes I mean sometimes they would do it for common criminals Uh, but that's how Jesus was uh, as as we all know was killed right, let's keep going verse 2 this man came to Jesus by night under the cover of darkness now it's interesting there's two things that can be highlighted from that first darkness in the john's gospel is synonymous with also not just darkness but spiritual darkness and i don't want to put too much negativity on nicodemus because he eventually was born again but he was coming out of a spiritually dark time and also it means that he didn't want to be seen by his peers We want to kind of keep things, you know, concealed. So he comes under the cover of darkness by night and he says, Rabbi. Now right there, saying Rabbi is a term of respect to Jesus. He's acknowledging that there is something special, something authoritative by Jesus by calling him Rabbi. Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Now we read later in John's Gospel that Jesus had no formal training. And so Nicodemus is showing respect to Jesus, not first and foremost for his authority, but the fact that he has heard and seen some of these miracles. And he's recognizing they're from God. Remember there were others who were saying, oh, you're doing it by the power of the devil. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, I'm sorry, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For Yeah, okay, I already said that. Verse 3, Jesus answered and he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus hasn't asked him anything at this point. He's just stated the fact that he respects Jesus. But Jesus goes right to the heart of the matter. Jesus doesn't get sidetracked with ceremonial issues, or, oh yeah, thanks for letting me know that. But he goes right to the heart of the matter. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus immediately is going to think, well, wait a minute, I see the kingdom of God. Am I anticipating the kingdom of God? I'm looking forward to the kingdom of God. Because they believed in the scriptures that said that the Messiah is going to come and institute the kingdom. Remember, they thought it was going to happen then. And so Nicodemus responds in verse 4, and he says, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? It wasn't so much a question of, How can this even be, man? It was a question of, How can this really happen? How does this happen? But let's break down what Jesus is saying here. Nicodemus is saying, hey, you know, you can't be born physically again. And Jesus is saying, oh, yeah, that's true, you can't. But he says, born of water and of the Holy Spirit. Not only can you not see the kingdom, you can't even enter it. You need to have a spiritual rebirth. Now, it's interesting. There's a number of ways to interpret water and the Holy Spirit. Now, there are some churches who teach that water means actually water baptism. The problem with that view is if that's the case, then what Jesus is saying is that unless you are water baptized and born of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom. That would make baptism a requirement for salvation. Baptism is not a requirement for salvation. Should you be baptized? Yes. Does baptize represent the salvation of God? Yes. But the act itself cannot be baptized part of salvation itself, otherwise, then you're adding a work. I don't care how anybody tries to explain it otherwise. And the fact of the matter is, there are some churches that teach or overemphasize baptism. So that's one interpretation. I don't agree with it, obviously. The second would be that the water refers to the water baptism of John. John the Baptist. That it represents repentance. Repentance. Because remember, John said, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is greater than I, who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so it's Jesus' Jesus's way of saying, unless you truly repent of your sin and allow the Holy Spirit to change you from the inside out, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus should have realized From Ezekiel, I mean, he would be familiar with the law and the prophets. Look at what what the Lord spoke through the prophet Ezekiel. He said, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. So is it the water that's actually cleaning you? No, it's God. Water's a symbol. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. A heart of stone means a hard heart. A heart of flesh means you're warm to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. In other words, the only way I can truly walk in the statutes of the God, the Lord is if the Holy Spirit is empowering me and showing me and guiding me to do it, if I'm relying on Him, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So look at that's Old Testament. That's a prophecy of what God's going to do. That is what Jesus is alluding to. Now what's fascinating is that if you were a Gentile and you wanted to become a Christian, a Jew, the right of entrance into the Jewish faith was that you had to be, have a ceremonial washing of water that symbolizes the, that you're being clean. You would get a new set of clothing, and you would then be considered part of the covenant community of faith. But if you were a Jew, you didn't have to do that. You know what was the basis for your entrance into the Jewish faith? Your birth. I'm a descendant of Abraham, so I'm a member of the covenant. And so what Jesus was telling Nicodemus is, no, it's not because you're born as a descendant of Abraham that gets you into the kingdom. It's not because you're a Jew ethnically that gets you into the kingdom. You have to have a spiritual rebirth. That's what John the Baptist was emphasizing to all the Jews. Don't think you are saved just because you're a descendant of Abraham. Repent! So that is another interpretation. And then there are those who would say that. It can actually be translated this way. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, even the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So in essence, the water represents the Spirit, or the Spirit represents the water, and it's the work of God. I personally like to understand it this way. While John doesn't mention the Lord's Supper per se, where Jesus says, you know, he took the bread and and broke it, and said, this is my body, and he took the cup and said, this is my blood of the new covenant. The synoptics do, but not in John. But what does John do? John mentions Jesus' words, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot have life. So, John presents the theological basis for the sacraments. He's doing the same thing for baptism. So, while water does not represent the baptism itself, it represents the underpinning of what baptism is to represent in the life of the believer. When one repents, And so that repentance, that admitting that you have a sin problem and asking God to come into your life is the first step. And then the second step is the Holy Spirit coming into you. And then you're born again. The light bulb goes on. And then you can move forward and grow in the faith. And unless you're born again, you're not going to see the kingdom. And if you're not going to see the kingdom, you're not going to enter the kingdom. And brothers and sisters, you've been there. I've been there when I've talked to people and it's, they've got a hard heart. They don't get it. And you can explain things, you can do everything, you can even do a miracle, and they still wouldn't get it. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus. And if it happened to Jesus 2,000 years ago, should we be surprised that it's happening today? No. It's frustrating. You wonder why. but it happens. And Jesus then gives the analogy of the wind. Probably in the cover of darkness at night, there was a wind blowing through the environs of Jerusalem. And Jesus likens the Spirit to the wind. You don't know where the wind's coming from. You can't control the wind. You don't fully understand the wind. Same thing with the Spirit, but you know it's there. You can see the effects of the wind. You can see the effects of the Spirit. You can see the change in a person's life. I can see whether or not someone is Spirit-filled. I can know if you're born again or not. You can too, and God certainly does. Unless you're born again. Now, people talk about born-again Christians. I always say that's... A redundant term. That's an oxymoron, right? You're either a Christian. If you, in other words, if you're a Christian, you're born again. If you're born again, you're a Christian. But the problem was that there were a lot of people in the church who really, really didn't get it. The light bulb didn't go on. And so they say, oh, I'm a born-again Christian now. Well, that's really a redundant term. There's really no such thing. But for the sake of highlighting the fact that you weren't really a Christian when you were supposed to be a Christian, I can understand you saying you're a born-again Christian. Okay, verse 10, And Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher? Not a teacher, but the teacher. He's a man of province. The teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. At that point, he wasn't fully. Not yet. Now, why we? That's a very good question. There's two interpretations to that. That Jesus was in the presence of his disciples, and he was speaking Together with them, we, or it could be the fact that Jesus was highlighting the fact that he is the earthly witness of the divine trinity, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We testify, either one. and You do not accept our testimony. Verse 12, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? In other words, Jesus is using a concrete example. You know, you, I talked to my confirmation class on Saturday. I used the analogy of the wind. You know, people get it. I remember when I first read that passage, you're like, yeah, the wind, that makes sense. The wind's like the Spirit. You can't see it, but it's there. I, I can see that. The disciples, when they first were, experienced Jesus, they knew there was something unique about him. They, they knew that he was special, and they believed. They didn't get bogged down in all the baggage of religiosity. They didn't try to overanalyze and question things. That's exactly what Nicodemus was, and that's exactly what a lot of religious leaders do. Pathetic. And so, Jesus is like, hey man, if you can't get it through me using children's homily here with the kids on the little object lesson, how are you going to get it when I start really talking to you about some some deep things? Some theological truths? And then Jesus does exactly that. Let's look as we wrap things up here. Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Ah, now he's not getting into concrete, he's getting into spiritual truth here. First of all, he's saying he's the Son of Man, the unique Son of Man, fully God, but fully flesh, a descendant of woman. But no one has ascended into heaven and come back from heaven. In other words, there is no one ever who has the relationship that Jesus has to heaven and to God, for he is God, but as the son, who can say, I go and back and forth, and I reveal to you exactly what is true. No one else can do that. That's why when these people like Muhammad and these others, get a special revelation from heaven, Joseph Smith, get a special revelation. How can you say you have a special revelation from heaven when you've never even been to heaven? Jesus has been to heaven. He's the only one. He is ascended. He's descended. And that reminds us that our faith is not a faith that we discover. It's a faith that's revealed. It's uncovered to us by God. It comes from Him. It's not something you and I can figure out. We're just shown it. And then we have a choice. Do we accept it or do we reject it? Ours is a revelatory faith. And then Jesus uses the account from Numbers... As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Now let's look at the account that Nicodemus would be familiar with because these guys would memorize the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. They would memorize other portions of the Law and the Prophets. So these guys, they're memorizing Scripture. They should understand it, but they didn't. Many of them didn't. But look at what happened in Numbers. Then they set out from Mount Hor. By the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. We loathe this miserable food. So here's the problem These people are complaining to God and Moses after actually seeing God's provision. They just came out being set free from their bondage in Egypt, they've seen the miraculous power of God, but they're impatient and they're trying God, they're testing God. And here's the danger. The more God reveals to us, the more you're exposed to the holiness of God, there's a greater judgment if you reject that. One of the things about being in the age of grace is that God will forgive us. God spares people because many people are rejecting him or not following him because of ignorance. Remember when Jesus yelled from the cross or prayed from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. He wasn't saying that to the religious leadership. The religious leadership knew what they were doing. But many of the people were saying, crucify him, crucify him. They didn't really know what they were doing. So Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Jesus said, every sin against uh, the Father or against God will be forgiven except for blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. What's blaspheming of the Holy Spirit? Blaspheming of the Holy Spirit is when you know that that is of God, but you reject it. And you say, it's evil. It's calling good evil and evil good. No hope for someone like that. And so that's what was happening here. Verse 6, The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. Ah, they they are repenting. They're admitting their problem because we have spoken against the Lord, and you intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. This, brothers and sisters, is a type of the gospel. There was a reason why this happened, not only to highlight God's judgment and grace, but to point us to the coming of the Messiah. Because Jesus quotes this, he refers to this, when he says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, and all who look to the serpent live. So too the Son of Man will be lifted up. And that phrase, lifted up, is a reference to his death. For in John 8 and John 12, Jesus talks about being lifted up for the sins. It's him being lifted up on the cross. And look at what was true about the Israelites. as a pertain to their predicament and getting out of their predicament. Number one, the Hebrews were disobedient and under judgment. We are all disobedient and under judgment. Number two, The object the serpent lifted up was the symbol of their judgment. What is the object of our judgment? Death. Number three. They were unable to rescue themselves. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot take away our sin by anything we do. Four. The poison of the serpents was deadly and there was no antidote for it. There is no human antidote for the sin problem. Five. All they had to do was obey the Lord and look at the serpent and live. All they had to do was trust what God was saying was true and do it. Receive it. And isn't it beautiful? Because the object of their death was the serpent. The object of our death is death itself, sin. And Jesus is the one who takes on death to destroy death. He uses death to destroy death. He does it for us. He says, I'm walking in your shoes. I'm taking your place. And it's simple. All we have to do is say, trust him and say, believe. And so the last part of John chapter 3 is Jesus expressing the heart of the gospel. Very profound. It's why he came. It's why the gospel is so important. It's how we pass from judgment to life. And we're going to close with that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Verse 15, remember, so whoever believes will in him have eternal life. That's the first mention of eternal life. It'll be mentioned 10 times totally in John's Gospel. Eternal life is not just life without end. Eternal life is life with meaning, abundance, fullness, purpose, beauty, perfection. That's what eternal life means. In contrast to destruction, to division, to discord, to disease, to death, to perishing. That's the contrast. That's what we have in Jesus because he's the author of life. And the basis, God doesn't want anybody to perish. He loves everybody. The basis is the Father's love for us who gives up the Son, and the Son's love for the Father and us who gives his life for us. Verse 17, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. Now, we're already judged, right? But once I believe, once I look, just as the people look to the serpent, once we look to Jesus, I'm no longer under judgment because of everything he's done, not because of what I've done. But he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. So what is that saying? We already know that we're in darkness, right? We already know people's deeds were evil. But then once you're exposed to the light, you have a choice. Am I going to go for the light or I'm going to stay with the darkness? If I stay with the darkness, that means I love darkness more than I love light. And then I remain in my judgment and there is no hope for me. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Right? They don't want to be held accountable. Verse 21, But he who practices the truth comes to the light. It's kind of both and You know, you get the light and then you practice the truth and you get more light. It's kind of like that analogy I've used in the the cave. As you go closer to the light, you get more light. You get more truth. If right? you get farther away, you get more darkness. And that little light that you had is gone. This is the beauty right here. So that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Not in wrought in self. Not his deeds to say, look at me. But all glory goes back to God. It is God working his perfect will in us. And that my brothers and sisters, is the heart of the gospel. Born again. Pass from judgment to life. Born again. Have the promise of eternal life, but not just the future, but in the present. Born again. Have the presence and power of the Spirit living in you. Born again. Greater is He who lives in us than he who is in the world. Any questions or comments as we continue next week? Finishing John 3 and going into the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well John chapter 4. Yes, Bill? Well, it says, you know, uh, no one has ascended into heaven who he, he descended. But didn't Elisha, some of these guys go up there with the, in the Old Testament? Yeah, but the difference is this Jesus is the only one who's ascended and descended. He's the only one who comes from heaven and goes back to earth and back forth. Uh, as far as I know, Elijah, he's still up there. He hasn't come back. He hasn't come back and said, Hey! Mm, this is what you missed. No. But good good question. Anyone else? Yes. So this revealed to it say was done all this out? Revealing it? I'm sorry? To Nicodemus, correct. No, no, it doesn't. Remember, we only have snippets. All we know is that Nicodemus Answer some key questions in John chapter seven, verses 50 through 52. You might want to look at that. I have that reference. and we know that Jesus helped Joseph of Arimathea and the burial of Jesus I'm, I'm sorry, Nicodemus helped um, Joseph of Arimathea in the, bo- in the burying of Jesus. So Nicodemus became to faith. Now I'm glad you pointed that out because some scholars will say verses 16 through 21 of John chapter three were not actually Jesus' words, but John's commentary on jesus's words because back then they didn't have quotes like we have today so you don't really know if jesus's conversation with nicodemus ended at 15 and then 16 to 21 is just the commentary of john the apostle on the heart of the gospel of what jesus did i would suggest that actually jesus could very well have said that to nicodemus as well as on many other occasions, because we need to realize that because we're only getting snippets of Jesus' teachings, only getting a small fraction of all his miracles, to think that he didn't repeat himself is preposterous. Of course he repeated himself. The Sermon on the Mount, I'm sure he taught in different ways several times. And so this word that we have him sharing with Nicodemus, he very much could have said multiple times. At the same time, maybe the Apostle John did offer commentary there. We don't really know. The bottom line, though, is it is God's Word, and it's true, and it makes perfect sense in light of Jesus' coming. Any other questions or comments? Yes.
0: I don't remember which one it
1: was.
0: But we visited
1: a model mm-hmm. that was a Oh the temple? <laughs> yeah, the temple. It's pretty impressive.
0: Oh, okay, that's neat. And uh, so I, I thought i that because I know some of the people here were, were on with, uh, that, that it's, it's a remarkable thing to see if you ever get a chance
1: to get down. Yeah, definitely get down if you haven't been down to Lancaster. All right, well, let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank You for the blessing of knowing You in the person of Jesus. We thank You for Your Holy Spirit. We thank You for the fellowship we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. For the power we have. Help us not to take it for granted. Help us not to uh, ignore it. Help us to make the most of every opportunity that you give us, every waking breath, that everything might be done to your glory, that we would realize that we can worship you and we can reflect your love uh, every moment, uh, and that we would do it uh, in you and not uh, just thinking that it's a bunch of stuff that we have to do, but really that it's a relationship. Uh, and just as we have our relationships with our loved ones. Uh, we pray that um, we would uh, keep that mindset uh, when we uh, spend time with you. We thank you and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: You have been listening to the Transforming Lives Together podcast, a ministry of St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church in Tonawanda, New York. For more information about the church, including a list of our service times, please visit our website at www dot Barts dot org again that's www dot ton dot If you're enjoying this podcast please leave us a five star rating or a positive review. Both will help in reaching more people with this podcast. If you're on Facebook head over to facebook.com slash transforming lives together podcast again that's facebook.com slash transforming lives together podcast and give us a like we hope you will tune in next time as we continue with life's meaning and purpose an in-depth study of the gospel of john until then we leave you with these verses from the book of acts then peter filled with the holy spirit said to them rulers and elders of the people For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. God bless.